Well, let me just put it to you this way. There isn't a person in healthcare right now that I've met that isn't sick of this, isn't mad, isn't upset, isn't frustrated, isn't tired of it, isn't just beat down. Every day it's COVID. Get some kid with seizures and, oh, also he's got COVID. Uh, I mean, it's just it's just all COVID all the time. And it's tiring. It's, it's just as tiring as I suppose it is to everybody else. What I'm looking forward to is seeing Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, and, and Novavax coming out in the next month. That would be a total game changer. All three, by the way, they're all refrigerator vaccines. Johnson & Johnson is the only one that's a one dose. It means you can get the vaccine to the person instead of making the person go to the vaccine. We can decrease the spread really well if enough of us get vaccinated. And we can also decrease the spread really well if we do enough of that other social mitigation stuff. So we don't have to wait until we get 70% of the population vaccinated in order to see this thing begin to trail off if we just behaved right, right now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford, and we're kicking off February's slate of new episodes with our latest COVID-19 roundtable. So much is happening right now as our healthcare heroes and hospital systems continue to be pushed to their limits. At least one new and highly transmissible coronavirus strain is confirmed in Arizona. The death toll climbs and the toll of social, health, and economic impacts increases too. On the other side of the equation, the race to ramp up vaccine approvals and get actual shots in arms gains momentum. Today, we'll work to get a handle as to where Arizona stands on each of these items. One fact still stands out. Arizona continues to lead the nation in terms of weekly average new COVID cases. It was 12 months ago that our state confirmed its first COVID case. We have amassed a year of learning, and it still boils down to this. In order to slow the spread, you've got to stay home as much as you can wash up and mask up when you can't, and shrink your circle. It really truly is that simple. When we don't do these things, cases rise and more people die. When we do, cases fall and we save lives. Do your part, slow the spread, be COVID smart. All right, there's a lot to talk about, so let's get to it. It's time to talk about our healthcare heroes, a COVID 2020 year in review, what's up with the new vaccine approvals, and what's going on with the current vaccine rollout as of February 1, 2021. We are here for another COVID-19 roundtable as we start the month of February 2021. Joining us today, Mr. Will Humble from the Arizona Public Health Association. Will, how are you doing? Happy February. Also joining us from our healthcare hero contingent, Dr. Nicholas Vasquez. Nick, how are you doing, sir? Better today. Thank you. Thank you for being here. And last but not least, one of the great minds of public health in Arizona, along with Mr. Will Humble, Dr. Bob England. Either how way, are you, sir? I'm as good as we can be during these times. Anybody want to volunteer to run the numbers between Bob and Will? I'll do it. Okay. Yeah, I will. I'm going to go by Dr. Joe Gerald's weekly report, which is probably, I would say, of all the Pieces of information that I get on a weekly basis, I would say Joe's epi and hospital capacity reports that he's been doing once a week since March are probably the best source of what's happening in Arizona, not just 
in terms of hospital capacity, but also in terms of epidemiology. He covers it from sea to shining sea. He does a great job and they're concise. They're like seven or eight pages. He builds a whole bunch of links in there too. So, so that if you want to dive deeper, you can. So we need to give some, some sort of medal at the end of this because he yeah. has really helped the public health community so much and the hospital community with his analysis that allows people to do planning that they otherwise wouldn't have be able to do because he's providing a service that you can't get anywhere else. And so I put it up on my blog every time I get it. Usually it's on a Saturday. I'll try to summarize what he found in this week's report, which is for the first time in, I would say, a couple of months, we have clear indications that there is some relief in terms of new hospitalizations for COVID patients in the hospital system. It's still at a super high level. Still, about half of the people that are in hospital beds and on ICUs are there because of COVID. There's this continuing huge displacement of everybody else that needs care and services within our Arizona hospitals. But last week it was on the fence, like, is this a real stabilization or are we looking at a data gap? This week, when you combine this week and last week, it looks pretty clearly like at least for now, it's not rising like it used to be and even a real decline. Now, hospitals are still completely full and will stay that way if this trend continues. What we'll see is fewer COVID patients in hospitals, but that'll be replaced by people who are actually able to get needed and necessary services that they haven't been able to get for the last two months. And so they're going to be able to start working the backlog of all those procedures that were not able to happen. Everything from slow growing cancers to knee and hip replacements to spinal surgeries and heart procedures and stuff like that. So that's on the hospital side, what's going on. In terms of new cases, I would say it's stabilizing. It's not increasing anymore. I think the r not the transmission level is about one or slightly below one now, where it's been above one for since before Thanksgiving. So that's an encouraging thing. You could go look at my blog and scroll back a few days and you'll see Joe's report. Things are stabilizing on the new case front, slightly getting better, although still bad when it comes to hospitalizations for COVID. And that's basically where we are. Here's the other thing. As we continue to make headway vaccinating people over 75, what I expect to have happen is that we will continue to see some relief in new hospitalizations, especially ICU, even if we don't see a real decrease in transmission of the virus, because the virus will be transmitting among lower risk people eventually, once we can make some deeper progress in vaccinating people over 75. That's in summary where we are. So it's not getting worse anymore, but it's still really bad. Bob, you were nodding your head through all that. Anything to add? Yeah, just if you do some rough math, and we talked about this before, when we peaked, when we were reporting 10,000 or so cases per day, based on previous prevalence data that Maricopa County did with three and a half times as many people really infected as were being reported, even with better testing, we were probably really infecting 30,000 people a day. And they were infectious for typically 10 days or so. So at that point in time, one in every 20, 25 people walking around on the street unknowingly with really mild or no symptoms were shedding virus. So as long as we keep 
allowing congregation of people together without precautions, without mask wearing in, in bars, restaurants, and so forth, you're just going to keep feeding this. So even though it's down a little bit, and that's really good news, it's way above where we could be if we just impose some limited mitigation. And ultimately, the irony of that is that gets us back to normal faster. Even if they began to actually truly enforce the mitigation measures that are supposedly on the books, where there's capacity limits in the bars, restaurants, and nightclubs. And I mean, there's just no enforcement of any of that. Even if there had been real enforcement of the mitigation measures in the bars, restaurants, and nightclubs, we would be in a different spot than we are. But it's been just window dressing to make it seem like there's limitations. Just go anywhere on the weekend from breakfast on. They're all packed. (laughs) It blows my mind. I mean, I think about what Nick and all his colleagues and so many healthcare workers I know are going through, and we're deliberately putting them through this by not scaling back even modestly some of the activity that's fueling us being the hot spot in the world. And we've held off Nick as long as we can. One of the pleasures of having you on this podcast is that you get to take us from the broad scale numbers down to the close-up experience. And for you, that experience is pretty darn frustrating. Well, let me just put it to you this way. There isn't a person in healthcare right now that I've met that isn't sick of this, isn't mad, isn't upset, isn't frustrated, isn't tired of it, isn't just beat down. Every day it's COVID. Get some kid with seizures and, oh, also he's got COVID. Uh, I mean, it's just it's just all COVID all the time. And it's tiring. It's, it's just as tiring as I suppose it is to everybody else. It's this weird sort of, dual world that we live in. We're on one world, we are just not doing enough compared to what we could. And on the other world, you have people saying, stop oppressing me, my rights, my rights, my rights, as if there was just no middle in any of this. I had to swallow my own frustration when I had the patient tell me, well, I never thought it would be this bad. Just had to look at them and kind of go, I've been having these conversations since March of 2020. It reminds me of that idea that everybody thinks they're above average driver, how everyone thinks that they're going to be the one who either doesn't get COVID or gets over it. Or conversely, the people who feel like, oh my God, I'm going to die from it. And they hold up. It's really hard to live with the healthcare system as it is. More intensity, sicker people, lower numbers. It's just kind of really weird, but it's been that way since March or April of last year. And we all like emergency medicine because there's new stuff every day and there's just not been anything new since April. It's making us all just really weary. Do you feel as though enough learning has transpired on COVID that you do have treatment options that you didn't in July, that you didn't in March, that you didn't even in November? The bottom line answer, the short answer is yes, but ultimately the real answer is no. I can give you treatment if you're sick enough to require the hospitalization. 
Number one, I can give you oxygen. Number two, I can give you Decadron. But even the tailored antibodies, the BAM, LAM, Nivimab that we've been giving out, there's a lot of controversy over whether or not the data was manipulated to bring it to market. Remdesivir is really minimal in its impact. And a lot of people are holding out this idea, okay, there's going to be a treatment. My personal experience with Tamiflu for the influenza is that these things work very little with just enough of a benefit in the sickest, most vulnerable populations that it met muster. And we're in a pandemic and an emergency, so the FDA goes, oh, okay, all right. In actual clinical practice, it's really the same as it was before. Are you sick enough to need oxygen? If yes, admit to the hospital. If no, go home, good luck. And that's it. That's been the case since April. That is the case now. We give Decadron for those sick enough to require admission, and that is saving lives. But beyond that, I look people in the eye and go, I wish you well, because I don't know what's going to happen to you. Nine out of 10 people get better. One out of 10 doesn't. Bob, that's a pretty basic decision tree. Have you ever seen a virus, a epidemic that had such a simplistic equation to it? Yeah, flu is very much the same, as Nick just mentioned. Of course, this thing has turned out to be much worse. We've all made mistakes through this thing. I go back and look at some of my first daily briefings that we were broadcasting when I was with Pima County and just shake my head at how stupid I was. Okay. We've all made mistakes through this. The difference here in Arizona is that we're not learning from them and fixing them. We've made some really good decisions too, and then tossed them aside. So it's incredibly frustrating my heart goes out to every healthcare worker who's dealing with this around the state because we're putting them through needless agony. They're really paying for it. Not just the ones who get sick themselves, not just the ones who die. I don't know as many as Nick does, but I know healthcare workers who are just, I, I don't know the right word with it. Empathy fatigue would be the word. Burnout, frustrated, or over it, whatever word you want to use. There's just this fatigue. I still do everything I can do, even though I'm now fully vaccinated. I'm like a pet. I got all my shots. The vaccination benefit is really against severe disease, so it prevents me from maybe getting admitted to the hospital. There's just still this open question in some people's mind, and I think even my family's mind, well, can I carry it? Can I continue to pass it along? I'll gown up in PPE fully, even if the answer was no. And yet at the same time, I walk into rooms and there's people just wearing paper masks because they're tired of it. They're just tired of it. The likelihood that the vaccine does not help keep you from spreading it is really, really low. The only disease that I know of that even being hinted at with vaccine is inactivated polio vaccine. Everything else, the way we made herd immunity, the way we don't deal with measles day in and day out as a routine childhood disease and so many other diseases as well, is because the vaccine does exactly that. It keeps you from carrying it and spreading it to other people. We have to think about social mitigation like we do vaccine. Vaccine isn't perfect. That's why Nick and others, and we all should, continue to wear masks and continue to stay away from congregate settings as much as we can and so forth. But we can decrease the spread really well if enough of us get vaccinated. 
And we can also decrease the spread really well if we do enough of that other social mitigation stuff. So we don't have to wait until we get 70% of the population vaccinated in order to see this thing begin to trail off if we just behaved right, right now. In this state, we're going to have to wait because the people well, <laughs> making the policy decisions have no interest in putting together policies that discourage the wrong kind of behavior. So in this state, we're stuck. It's only the vaccine. The consequence is that we're getting to herd immunity just as fast, if not faster, by disease than yep. we are by vaccine. That's and right. it doesn't have to happen. That's right. And if you want to protect the economy... You can do it better by keeping people from getting so sick. I really appreciated what you pointed out in your year review report, Will, when you made the point that we could have mitigated some of the economic impact by using CARES money that way instead of using it to offset other agency costs so that we could come out and ask for another tax break. Just two points. I mean, first of all, I think one of the things that people who said, well, we should just get to herd immunity as quick as possible, didn't think about ahead of time before they made that decision was the long-standing social impact that's going to have. Things that won't go back to normal ever because people have now gotten acclimatized to this or kids have gotten used to this. There are some things that just won't ever really go back quite to normal the way they were. This is going to leave a mark. If not in empty seats at a table, then just in the way that people have learned to get their groceries delivered or, or change their behaviors going to restaurants, it's just not going to go back to normal whenever the pandemic ends. And the other part is the resounding agreement I have with you over just how silly it is in the midst of a pandemic to offer up tax cuts without really putting a down payment on things like public health infrastructure, on education mitigation, on dealing with the threats of future pandemics. I just don't think that really is well thought through. I give all credit to the intelligence of the governor and his staff, but I, I feel that this is another one of those, well, the real consequences for these tax cuts will be more than two years down the line, and that's after the end of my term. So let's just keep the party going. I feel like it was a a gross irresponsibility. The Arizona Public Health Association has been very, very busy of late. Bob already alluded to the 2020 year in review on the COVID pandemic. I can't imagine who wrote this, but I'm going to quote, Arizona's poor performance has not been because of bad luck or fate, as has been suggested. It is largely because of an inability to learn from policy successes and failures, bad decisions, misplaced priorities, and an inability to execute core responsibilities. Yeah, that was me. I wrote that <laughs> whole thing. Although my wife did edit. She does the grammar check for it and all that kind of stuff for me. This is about, I'd say, January 5th or 10th or something like that. I was up at about 3.30 in the morning. I just couldn't get it out of my mind that we had just finished 2020 and I hadn't written up anything to pull everything together from a policy perspective. That sentence, I think my spouse kind of thought that was a little harsh. And she said, are you sure you want to leave that in? That just sounds like it's harsh. And I said, it's not, it's the truth. I'm leaving it in because that's what I think happened. We use these uh, three gates for my kid before we let her kind of say something out loud. Um, is it true? Okay, great. Is it kind? I don't know. And is it 
helpful. One of the things about this communication in a polarized world that has been really important to remember is using language as a tool to not inflame, but to inform is really kind of the key, even when the policymakers make active choices to just do nothing. I don't know that I'll ever agree with the choices that were made, but I don't sit in the governor's seat and, you know, being mean to him isn't going to get him to change his tune. I, I think just trying to use communication as a tool is hard enough, but running a state, I have some empathy for what he's going through. Two other things the Public Health Association has brought to light very recently, the first of the two being the all-cause mortality report for 2020. Will? That came out of conversations in my private life, but also things that I've heard publicly. I've heard grievances over time where people say, oh, no matter what caused the death, they're just calling it COVID-19. And so that death certificates are being doctored to make this thing look worse than it is. There are people that believe that. And I remember thinking, okay, well, let's look at all cause mortality. So we'll just look at the number of deaths, regardless of what the cause was. And let's do a report that looks at what happened over the course of 2020 in terms of total deaths. And that doesn't lie. A death, a death, a death. And we'll compare it to the last 10 years. And so that's what that report was, is an effort to say, hey, look, for those folks out there that think that there are secretly people coding things as COVID because they get higher reimbursement or whatever conspiracy that they have, all-cause mortality doesn't lie. Those are people who died. And if you look at it across 2020, you see a big spike, rises in June, huge spike in July. Then the interventions took effect. It starts to drop in August. And it goes not quite down to the baseline for a couple of months and then starts to accelerate. And you just wait until what you see that looks like in January. It's going to be much higher than even was in December of 2020 in terms of total mortality. That was one of my objectives. Another thing is that I had heard at some of the press conferences that it was suicides that was causing that increase. That made me really angry because I know people that do suicide epidemiology and they were telling me that is not true. And that's why I spent a couple of paragraphs diving into that so that I could put to rest the fact that it was suicides that was causing the deaths over and above COVID-19. So what we found was that overall mortality in 2020 was 25% higher than any other year. And that's for a virus that didn't even start really circulating until later in March, honestly. So it's really more, if you cut those first two months off, or even the first three, I'd say it was probably at least 30, 35, higher than that even, in terms of the increased deaths over any other year in the last 10 years. And I'm talking about rates, not just numbers. So we adjusted the denominator. That was the reason that I wanted to put that together is no way you could say that's amplified. It is what it is. We had 12,000 COVID deaths and an additional 3,400 deaths from other things. And my hypothesis is, and I, we may see that it's going to take a while to do this analysis because we don't have the data yet, is the things that Nick was just describing, people who present to the ED who are sent home because they'd normally be given a bed, but they're not because there's just no room at the inn are sent home. That's part of it. I think part of it is people who are at home and let's say they have chest pain, but they decide not to go to the ED. They don't call 911. They tough it out. They stay there. And five days later, they have a heart attack that gets booked as a heart attack and they don't have COVID-19, but indirectly because the hospital was so full, they decided to not go either because they were scared of what they'd see when they got there, or maybe they did go. 
but didn't get admitted because they couldn't get triaged in. In the end, we're going to see that kind of stuff. I can't speak for all the other hospitals, but I can speak for the chatter that I hear from the other ER docs is that we're all living in a world where the general perception is that the hospital is completely full. And in many ways, this last couple of months, that's been absolutely true. We haven't turned anybody away, but we've certainly gotten creative where we put people. We've also gotten creative where we admit people to, like use the transfer line or waiting in the freestanding ED, say for days. I had a patient who waited several hours for a bed and because of our treatments got better and then ended up going home. I mean, just stories like that abound. We don't do what we would normally do, but we try to replicate it as much as possible. What I've definitely seen, though, is people expressing a great deal of reservation, fear, and anxiety about coming to the hospital. And I've seen really much more advanced pathology in some people than, honestly, I thought we should see. Diabetics with their feet, elderly people with abdominal pain that turns out to be perforated, just stuff like that where people just decided there's no way in hell I'm coming in, and they present way too late. As you mentioned in the report also, Will, people are getting routine screening stuff done a lot less than usual. I hear it all the time. Yeah, I'm due for my colonoscopy, but I'm skipping it this year. Yes, I am usually go see my cardiologist to get my annual checkup on how my stents are doing, but I'm going to skip it this year. That kind of stuff, which for a fraction of them, will land them up in Nick's ER instead of being detected and treated earlier. Or showing up in Nick's ER in 2022 or late 2021 right? with a later stage cancer. We're going to be dealing with this for a long time. Bob, how many years have you served as a public health official? Since 87 until last year. Have you ever seen a month-by-month trajectory like the one that's in Will's all-cause mortality report, where in January, there's no change. February, there's some change. March, there's some change. And then it's 65% higher in July, 61% higher in December. The correlation is uncanny. It exactly mirrored the times when COVID was surging. So it just drives home the hypotheses. Real COVID-related, some of which may not be detected, and probably a lot of routine stuff that was deterred because of the existence of the pandemic. And P.S., the Alzheimer's Association of the United States has already run the numbers using federal data and found that dementia deaths are up somewhere between 16 and 20% this year. Think about it in the long-term care centers. Even if residents don't catch COVID, the ability for the staff to provide the usual care and the ability for family to come in and provide most of the daily life assistance has been gone. One more thing that the Arizona Public Health Association passed on to everybody this week, the Network for Public Health Law Webinar, a new national strategy for COVID-19 response. Will, what do you think we can expect with the new administration? Well, I think we can expect to see a firmer commitment to evidence for driving public health policy, public policy generally, but especially public health policy. And so to me, that's a refreshing thing. That's the main thing is that evidence is going to be a lot more important. And the people that are making the decisions are very different. We have a CDC director who's different, a different HHS secretary. Who's in these jobs really, really matters. 
when you're in a job like I used to be and Bob was, it's daunting to see how much statutory authority and flexibility and how what your decisions can actually do in these jobs. And it's even more so when you get to someone like the HHS secretary. These agencies have a lot of discretion in the decisions that they make. And now there's new people in those decisions with a different kind of worldview. I think the most important thing, and I've said this before too, is that the communication will be more consistent. If we hadn't had such mixed messages coming from the top for so long about mask wearing and social distancing and severity of the disease and so forth, we would not see nearly as much politically motivated pushback as we have seen. And that's something that really disappointed me a lot was to see how political this became, how fast. I All that time that you noted that I've been a public health official, John, we did pandemic preparing all the time. And the one thing that I had in the back of my head wrongly expected was that like other natural disasters, it would bring people together. When we respond to a flood or a hurricane or fires or some other natural disaster, the community typically comes together. Not everybody, but mostly. And this got to be such a struggle politically about individual liberties that it, and if the communication had been more consistent, I don't think it would have been that bad. It would have been easier for mandates for masks and other social mitigation to have been imposed. The cooperation with them would have been a lot higher if it hadn't been such a polarizing topic. Nick? I'm shocked to hear you say that issuing edicts by Twitter is not helpful. The amount of gross negligence and honestly sabotage that came forth once this became clear it was not going to go away quick and that there was no political win. It's almost as if we need like a truth and reconciliation commission that's ridiculous. It was an active effort to undermine the efforts that we would normally take. I don't say that lightly. The other thing is that some of the people who are in charge now, there's two of them in particular I'll call attention to. Chief of Staff Ron Klain, and then one of the COVID coordinators, her name is Dr. Celine Gounder. They had actually joined up on a podcast called Epidemic, the beginning of this, which uh, took a, a real 360 viewpoint on COVID and its impact. And it's worth your time if you if you have a chance to kind of go and listen to it. And Dr. Gounder is still doing the, the podcast. This is a bit like climate change, where you have to understand the difference and the tension between the American ideal of I'm an independent person and I can overcome stuff on my own and the reality of the science, which is we're baked in. We're baked in for a challenge. The only thing we can do is help it to not get worse. People don't hear that. They hear hope. They hear like, what's in it for me? What can I do? Because we all struggle in some way, some more than others. And those people who struggle or work for a daily living, they don't think about grand challenges. They think about getting through to the weekend. The, the mindset and the communication has got to be really clear. We can do this for each other. We can get through this. It's got to be hopeful. But I mean, we're in for it one way or the other. And the only thing we can do right now is not make it worse. And that's a hard thing to sell to most of the people. Let's talk about where we are with vaccine development. Will, bring us up to speed on where other vaccines are besides Pfizer and Moderna. 
there's three that are sitting out there sort of at the end of their, or even finished with their phase three clinical trials. One is Novavax. That's one of the candidate vaccines that I hope to see an application into the FDA shortly for Johnson & Johnson, who looks like they're ready to put in their application this week. That's a one and done shot, by the way. So it's a single shot vaccine. And then there's the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is a partnership with Oxford University. And that vaccine has been authorized in the UK since New Year's, before that, actually. And the European Union, that was it, 26 countries within the EU, they authorized it for use Friday, I think. And so there's that vaccine, but none of them have been authorized in the US yet. Johnson & Johnson looks like they're going to put their application in. Johnson & Johnson has a contract to deliver 100 million doses to the U.S. before June. So that's a big bolus of vaccine. It's a one-and-done vaccine. And it's a refrigerator vaccine. So it doesn't require the weird cold chain stuff that the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines do. And and all three, by the way, though, the AstraZeneca, the Johnson & Johnson, and the Novavax are all refrigerator vaccines. Johnson & Johnson is the only one that's a one dose. It means you can get the vaccine to the person instead of making the person go to the vaccine because that's what's happening now is at these big pods, you got to get the person to the vaccine. But with Johnson & Johnson, we could get it into doctor's offices in a regular refrigerator or community health centers in a regular fridge or even pharmacies. Then we can start getting around this complicated appointment system using the state's website because they would be going to make appointments with their doctor or with their drugstore to get the vaccine. So that's what I'm looking forward to is seeing Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, and, and Novavax coming out in the next month. That would be a total game changer. Nick? Johnson & Johnson's a little bit like you just lunch and you don't need to go back for a second date. I think that would be great for a lot of the kids. They don't like commitment. They don't want to you know, commit to a second time around if they didn't like the first one. It just seems like a low-risk population should definitely get that Johnson & Johnson's. But, and I say a big but, I just saw this story and analysis on how inequitable the distribution of doctor's offices, clinics, and pharmacies are based upon where you're at. If you're in a richer area, you got more options. If you're in a poor area, you don't. If you're in a rural area, you don't. I'm curious to hear the plan on how to overcome some of the disequities, but at least you can get to part of the population having some of their vaccinations, some of their shots. Bob, the vaccine pods aren't doing so well on equity either. The anecdotal reports are that it's lines of BMWs and Lexuses and Tahoes and Teslas, not to mention that our folks who are older can't even get to the website and get registered. Okay, so I've worked a half dozen or so of those vaccine pods, and they're not all Lexuses and BMWs, but they are all cars. There's only one walk-in pod available out of the six that Maricopa County is running, and I think both locations for the state-run pods are drive-through. So that means that you got to have a car. And you are also absolutely right that appointment system, although they've made some improvements is difficult. If you're not at all computer literate, somebody's got to do it for you. Here's perhaps the biggest disequity in that whole system. The way it worked is if you wanted to get a February vaccine, you had to be on the state's website between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. the day after MLK Day. That was a Tuesday because the whole month of February's appointments were gone within a few hours. So that meant 
if you worked at a grocery store or in the community, if you didn't have a stay-at-home job with that kind of flexibility to try to find a vaccine for your parent, by the time you got home from work, they were gone for a whole month. It's not just the, the cumbersome nature of the state's appointment website, but it's the way it was rolled out so that the entire month was gone within a few hours. And that was your opportunity. And you're absolutely right about that. Real rate limiting step has been they make enough appointments for the vaccine that they've been promised by that day, which doesn't square with what you often see about what fraction of vaccines have actually been used of the ones that have been distributed. I just want to throw a note of caution into looking at that data because an awful lot of the people who have signed up to do vaccines at this point are not the usual vaccinator crew. They're not VFC providers who are used to ACEs and entering data and all of that. And I think there's quite a bit of errors in the tracking of the vaccine so far, just from what I've heard. So I'm taking it with a grain of salt. I think it's wise that the state is going to look at trying to figure out of the big ones, how many have how much vaccine still sitting in their freezer that might be moved elsewhere. I think that's fine. But I'll bet you won't find as much of that as the initial numbers tend to say, because everybody I've talked to says their appointments are limited by their vaccine supply. In fact, there's three more sites ready to roll out in Maricopa County that the only reason can't be opened is because they don't have vaccine to promise them. They've got enough supply to keep open what they've got. So, Bob, you mentioned the Vaccines for Children program. Yeah. VFC. You mentioned that right now, vaccine distribution isn't happening through those channels. Right. Combine that with what Will said about once we get some more vaccines, where the vaccine can come to you instead of you going to the vaccine. What does that future look like? Does that mean that people can walk into any clinic, any doctor's office, and also walk into Nick's emergency room? And if Nick sees somebody who is of the disequity group, if you will, the inequity group, somebody who qualifies but hasn't been able to drive their Tahoe or their Lexus to the pods, he can act. Is that what's going to happen hopefully relatively soon? Eventually, but I doubt seriously it's going to be relatively soon. I don't know ultimately how many of those private clinics, private providers are going to sign up for this. It is not an easy onboarding process. I'm just saying, especially if you're a practice that doesn't usually do vaccines. What about CVS? What about Walgreens? What about the, those? I'm hoping for, but I've also heard that the model that is anticipated is the same one they do for vaccines now. The same pharmacist who's going to be doing an occasional shot in between filling pill bottles. So the pharmacy is going to throw, I don't know, 10 or 20 doses a day. So even when you get it spread around a lot of pharmacies, it'll make it easier to find perhaps, but I don't think it's going to be the big push that we are all hoping for. I'm really anticipating the community health centers all getting into it in order to reach underserved populations. And we're still going to have to have some mass vaccine efforts going out to particular communities 
advertised easier to get appointments than currently either transferred from the drive-through pods or in addition to. Even when he was still president-elect Biden, I remember the weekend before he took office on that Wednesday, they put out this blueprint for vaccination, and that was front and center, mobile clinics into underserved areas with simpler appointment regimens. That is a really important tool. It's hard to do with Pfizer. It's totally doable with these others. Well, and Moderna. But one of the reasons fewer providers are in VFC than before is that the rules for doing vaccine in various settings are really tough. I know uh, pediatricians, for example, who wanted to do routine catch-up vaccines in their parking lots, but couldn't take more than one dose out at a time to the car because of the rules. We're going to have to have waivers or something, some existing red tape so that we can do those mobile clinics in the first place, because right now they're hard. If there's a state rule or state policy procedure, that's an executive order, does it? Could be even just the health director could waive those things. Nick, you've been covering your face like you've been watching a horror movie while these two guys have been talking. What's what's going through your mind? Because it goes back to this whole idea of we're going to offer $600 million in tax cuts when you just heard the banter between two of the single most experienced public health officials in Arizona about how difficult the logistics of this are. And they're like, I don't know if we can do it. Meanwhile, on the state level, it's all good. It's the year of the vaccine. The year of the vaccine, it's all going to be good. And we're just going to cover our eyes and pretend that everything is going to go according to plan and anticipate that not only is the economy going to rebound, but we're going to be able to bask in the glory of a tax cut. I want to put that out there that we have suffered for a long time in the United States of taking for granted that systems work and eroding them to the point where they no longer work. The level of investment that will be required to catch back up again is much larger than people I think are ready to pay. Just think about how much trouble, for example, Department of Child Safety or Child Welfare had upgrading its computer system, which was run on Fortran. That took years of losing kids in the system, years of people's lives being forever lost or disrupted before we go, fine. And I don't know how long you are ready to let this go, But the latest thinking is that we're going to have four to five years of this stuff. And that to me is a horror movie when we have a way forward where we finally get people vaccinated in a large enough amount for it to make a difference. Because, oh, by the way, variants are coming and we could do this all again. One last question, your succinct answer to the following. In the next 30 days, if you could change one thing to make Arizona's grasp of this virus stronger to bring down numbers and to do something to ensure improved health in this state, what would it be? Will, you're first. Just get these three vaccines loosened up. Okay. Novavax, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, and get them delivered. They've been making these things during the clinical trials. They're in storage right now. There isn't going to be any mitigation. There isn't going to be anything new in terms of non-pharmaceutical interventions. That's clear. The only thing that our elected and appointed official are interested in is vaccination. So we have to go with that. And these are some really flexible vaccines that could make a huge difference. And don't forget, We haven't said this on this podcast yet, but it's true and it's important, which is that no matter 
what you see as the level of effectiveness of these vaccines, whether it's 72% or 95%, they're all 100% effective at preventing death and ICU hospitalization across the board. You're pretty well guaranteed not to end up in an ICU and not to die. Nick, if you could muster a Reddit subgroup to change the course of the virus in Arizona, what would you tell that subgroup to do? I tell them to short the bars and long the schools. Basically, close down the indoor bars and dining. I go back to takeout and then uh, open the schools K through 12. Bob, if you could change one aspect of the rhetoric in the next 30 days, what would it be? If I had a magic wand and could do it, I would get some leadership that the folks who are the most skeptical and the most libertarian in terms of social mitigation and mask wearing that that they could listen to and preach the message about how this is our civic duty. I too would close the bars and keep the schools open. Will's right. It's very unlikely that more mitigation is gonna be imposed by government in Arizona, but that's the obvious answer. Until we can get there with vaccines, which is still gonna be a while, we have to do stuff to slow the spread. And I'm, I'm telling you, I do not understand somebody who says, I'm willing to put my life on the line and join the military to fight for this country or and to protect you, but I'm not willing to bother to put on a little paper mask when I have to go to the store. Where is the disconnect there? We're all in this together. If there's nothing that an infectious disease doesn't teach us, it's that we're all in this together. You may very well not get so sick, but you damn well are gonna be a link in the chain of transmission from you to somebody else in your family and outside of your family that is gonna result in people winding up in Nick's ICU. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Nick. And thank you, Bob. Folks, if you haven't had the chance to absorb some of the reports and news reporting referenced in this podcast, you should definitely make the time. Why? Because as was noted in this discussion, we do have the ability to make our near-term pandemic situation better in Arizona. We can do it through our actions. Understanding and motivation may be lacking given the amount of disinformation and confusion that we have been swimming in. Check the show notes. Will's 2020 COVID year in review the Arizona Public Health Association's all-cause mortality report, and Joe Gerald's latest analysis just might provide you with more conviction to be more disciplined and more COVID smart than ever before. The Vitalist Spark will be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, our back catalog of episodes awaits your ears. There's a lot to listen to, including guests from across the state and national experts too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The insights, reflections, and takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in business settings and city and town halls and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released, or listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you'd listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts, or you can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, 
remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.